the Belarusian protesters were actually quite conscious that they wanted their protest to be about Belarusian elections and not about the European Union and not about the Americans, which was not only tactic. I mean, I think it was tactically correct, but I think it was also it also came from conviction, and I admire that conviction. Hello there, listeners, and welcome to episode one of Conversations with Belarus Freedom Forum, a podcast where we discuss political developments in Eastern Europe and their importance for the American public. I'm your host, Mark Ashworth, and that was the voice of Dr. Timothy Snyder, a Yale University professor and an expert on Eastern European authoritarianism. Professor Snyder and I sat down for a conversation about democracy in Belarus and Russia, and we will get to that in a minute. But first, I would like to perhaps set the context for the interview and the fascinating and fundamental topics that we have covered in it. And I'm going to start this podcast episode uh, with a necessary banality, that democracy is not a given, right? Um, As a political process and a way of life, democracy um, is hard won and it is easily dismissed forget about it and well before you know it you have armed crowds storming the u.s congress right eastern europe is full of instructive examples of how democracy should not be taken for granted there's always a benevolent autocrat or two in the region who claims to know better or a president who wants to stay for just one more term and then he'll go or there are oligarchs with their hand in politics And sometimes people just happen to push back against it hard enough to make a difference. Um, Ukraine would be a great example of this. It had two democratic revolutions against the current government, one in 2005, the other one in 2013. In Russia in 2011, the Balotnia Square protests, uh, which were so massive, they actually scared Putin into thinking that Americans orchestrated it. And of course, the August 2020 election protests in Belarus, um, where we saw the biggest protest movement in the country's history, going on well into 2021. But despite this democratic show of force, not much seems to have changed. Um, Putin is still there, so are the Ukrainian oligarchs, and uh, let's not forget about Belarus's um, Alexander Lukashenko, who's been in power since 1994, and he's right now the longest ruling autocrat in the post-Soviet space. So I thought it would be nice to dedicate this very first episode of our podcast to a conversation about democracy in general, but also in Eastern Europe more specifically. Why it can be so difficult to achieve it there and what can we as a society learn from it? So for that, I was lucky to sit down with Professor Timothy Snyder, um, the Yale University historian and a very prolific author who specializes among, again, many other things in the history of Eastern European authoritarianism. Some of his books um, include The Reconstruction of Nations, Poland, Ukraine, Lithuania, Belarus, 1569 to 1999, On Tyranny, 20 Lessons from the 20th Century, and my favorite, The Road to Unfreedom, Russia, Europe, America. In The Road to Unfreedom, he comes up with this great concept of politics of eternity, um, a societal worldview where future holds no significant developments, but is instead a cycle of repetition um, of whatever has happened or is happening right now. And so things there happen regardless of what we do. So individuals lose all agency and the sense of responsibility for the future. And what replaces this is tribalism, eternal victimhood, and um, constant imaginary threat we are mobilized to fight. Um, 
sounds familiar, right? <laughs> so um, in my conversation with Professor Snyder, this concept turned out to be a great tool in explaining the challenges for democracy in Belarus and in Russia, um, as well as what can be done to help it flourish on our side. We also talked about Ukraine's democratic movement, Russian propaganda war, and the reasons the collective West should care about the developments in the region. I really enjoyed the conversation, and I hope that you will as well. Here it comes. Professor Snyder, thank you so much for finding the time. Um, I want to start with a question one of my colleagues had while preparing for this interview. Why do we keep living the way we do? Um, <laughs> and by we, I mean Belarusians, Russians, Ukrainians. Why is it always the same struggle with oligarchy, with autocrats, with kleptocracy um, in the post-Soviet Europe? Do we have to blame the Soviet legacy for that, or is there something else going on? Right. I mean, I, I think there are there are three different things going on. Number one, democracy is always hard. So th there there was this legend after 1989 that history was over and that somehow the lack of alternatives was a kind of vacuum that would just automatically suck democracy in. And that, of course, was crazy nonsense. Democracy is very difficult. It's very difficult even for established democracies. Um, all you have to do is look at the United States uh, to see to see that or to look at European democracies. So number one, democracy is hard. Number two is the the the, the problem of state building. Mm -hmm. So we, after 1989, 1991, people concentrated on economic reform, um, often at the expense of issues such as culture um, and 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 the the creation of of, of national societies, the creation of civil societies. But what we really overlooked was the creation of states. It's difficult to create a state. Belarus, Ukraine, and Russia, unlike, let's say, um, Poland and Romania, they, they weren't, there weren't states, right? Poland and Romania weren't sovereign states, but they at least had something that were like state structures. Belarus and Ukraine had much less of that. And then the third factor is the economic side of the Soviet inheritance. So, you know, the, 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 last, the last stage of communism, ironically, is monopoly capitalism, because central planning means that you have very few meaningful economic units. And after communism comes to an end, you have a scramble for those few meaningful economic units, which tends to lead to oligarchy, um, as, as, as we see it now. So, you know, those are the inheritances and the misunderstandings that said after 30 years, Belarusians and Ukrainians and, and and some Russians, of course, have tried to find their different ways out of these traps. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, speaking of these traps, um, in the road to unfreedom, you introduce this concept of the politics of eternity, which is notable by the absence of change in the future. There is no agency, there is no personal responsibility, but there is this perpetual victimhood. And I couldn't help but think about Belarus in mid-90s when Lukashenko was um, advocating for stability, for strong state control, limited privatization, and a general return to the familiar tenets um, of the Soviet Republic. So more of the same was the successful slogan for quite a while for him. Do you think Belarus maybe discovered the politics of eternity first? Maybe even before Russia did? Well, it's... That's that's very that's very interesting, and I think you're quite right about the 1990s in Belarus, and for that matter, it, it, Lukashenko today is very much practicing a politics of eternity. Because in addition to the features that you mentioned, the lack of the future, um, 
and the lack of lack of agency, which goes with that. An essential feature of the politics of eternity is a kind of eternal us and them. So we, we the, rather than a country looking for a future where individuals will have more choices, instead we are all supposed to act as a tribe and to be against some other tribe. So, you know, since. Since a year ago, the Lukashenko regime has very much gotten into this idea of the collective West and how the collective West is always out to get, you know, Belarus and Russia, and that's this kind of eternal tribalism. So, I mean, in my own in my own view, the people who got to the politics of eternity first were the Brezhnev regime in the 1970s, um, with the myth of the Great Patriotic War as a substitute for the promise of communism, which was never going to be fulfilled. And that's, that's why I happen to think that politicians such as Putin and Lukashenko are so comfortable with the politics of eternity because they themselves grew up with it. Like it was natural to them. That's what communism for them was always a nostalgic communism. It was always something looking back rather than forward. In your considerations of how to fight the politics of eternity, you talk about this importance of physicality, of actually being out there on the streets together with others participating in politics. And you also note how in Western countries it is becoming more difficult to physically mobilize because of social media and uh, because of how insulated we are. Um, I imagine COVID did not help things either here. So why do you think this mass mobilization in Belarus um, in August 2020 was possible? And why it was arguably such a great success? Um, why in a place where such mobilization is perhaps the coastliest form of behavior uh, it happened as opposed to say a western democracy yeah i mean there's look there, there's always a kind of mystery around these moments where um suddenly you know you, you you shift from a dozen people or a few hundred people or a few thousand to suddenly several million and and it's it's a bit mysterious it's a bit mysterious in ukraine in 2014 as well or ukraine in 2005 i mean in belarus I guess I would I would separate out a, f a few factors. Number one is generational, so the, the, the you have a generation of people who are now even in their 40s, not necessarily even very young people, whose main point of orientation is not the Soviet Union but is Belarus and therefore its future. Um, number two, you have you have you have the, the 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 clear failure with COVID. So if a government's going to promise stability, it's going to promise that things aren't going to change. And then it fails to meet a challenge like that. Then it's failing on its own on its own terms. Um, but you know, no, number number three is is would be the ingenuity that people took part in the protests themselves. I mean, a lot of the the organization was quite ingenious and um, and was was carried out by measures that the regime, at least for a while, was unable to trace and 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 to stop. And but I mean, for me, what's what's most striking is a factor which is not actually particularly Belarusian at all, and a factor which I think we overlook a lot. People actually like democracy. I mean, if you have a failed democracy or you have a flawed democracy, you can get tired of it. And the word democracy, as is happening in the US increasingly, doesn't mean democracy, but it means democracy's flaws. But people actually like democracy. I mean, people like the idea that their votes are going to be counted. There are very few people who, if you ask them, should your vote be counted or not, will say my mm -hmm. vote should be counted. And one of the things about the protests in Belarus that were, for me, were so pure and so simple was just that, that it's about representation. People want to be represented. And it seemed that there was a chance that they could, that people could be represented. I think that has a lot to do with it. In one of your conversations about Ukraine's Maidan, you offer 
In my experience, one of the shortest yet the most exhaustive definitions of the revolution of dignity by saying that it was a conflict about Europe, about the rule of law, the oligarchy, and the truth. And as a move away from Russian politics of eternity. There you also note that in 2014, Europe and the US have failed the test, so to speak. They have led the narrative to be shaped by Russia, and as a result, they invited more of it. Um, case in point, Mr. Trump. How does the current handling of the Belarus crisis and Lukashenko's dictatorship compare to the way West handled Ukraine? Would you say that the West is more responsive this time around? So one, one, one way in which the Western response has clearly been better is that we, we didn't lose the propaganda war. So in Ukraine, the most striking thing about the Ukrainian war was that Russia won the propaganda war. And the propaganda war was actually more important than the kinetic war, than the, than the physical war. I mean, Russia actually lost the physical war. Like things didn't go nearly as well for them as they expected in their invasion of Ukraine, but they very much won the propaganda war. Um, and, and, and having won that propaganda war, they then pushed forward with similar operations, for example, against the United States in 2016. So it was very consequential that the United States and, and, and European Union members were unprepared for that kind of approach to war, namely that it's first of all about propaganda and then only secondly about troops on the ground. In Belarus, people were not fooled. So, I mean, there are reasons for this. Lukashenko's propaganda wasn't as good. The Russians came in only later. They, did, they didn't have their stories ready, right? But basically nobody was fooled. I mean, there are plenty of people who didn't think that the protests would succeed, but there, were, there was almost nobody who believed the Lukashenko counter, counter story, that this was about Poland or Lithuania or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. So that's one important difference that we've become less stupid. Um, but another, but, but then one thing which is the same which I, I would like to emphasize is that the West is very bad at noticing when other countries do things better. So when we look at Ukraine, you know, we have this tendency to say, yeah, you know, Ukraine, but there, you know, there's too much of this, there's too much of that, which is all true. There are many ways to criticize Ukraine. But what we're bad at saying is, wow, a million people showed a lot of courage in defending the rule of law. And, and I think we've had that same problem with Belarus. I think, we've, I think the West has had trouble in saying those people, you know, those people, those Belarusians who took risks and who paid a price, which that many of them did and are doing, sadly, you know, people you and I know are, are, are sitting long prison sentences now, that we're, we have a hard time saying, well, okay, I'm going to tip my cap to that. I'm going to respect that. I'm going to talk about that over and over again, because those people did the right thing. Maybe they behaved more courageously. Than, than we would have done. And maybe courage and risk-taking is an inherent part of democracy. Like, I would have liked to see more of that, both vis-a-vis both Ukraine and vis-a-vis -vis Belarus. Speaking of the West, the Biden administration does not seem to have a problem with calling out the dictatorship in Belarus um, and the human rights violations in there. But Beyond this rhetoric, how much do you think the United States should be involved with Belarus and with its democratic opposition practically and politically, giving uh, the country's proximity to Russia and how Belarus is notoriously within Russia's sphere of influence? Yeah, I mean, the, the striking thing is that we, you know, we have so little, we had so little to do with it in the first place. I mean, and, and the Belarusian 
protesters were actually quite conscious that they wanted their protest to be about Belarusian elections and not about the European Union and not about the Americans, which was not only tactic, I mean, I think it was tactically correct, but I think it was also, it also came from conviction. And I admire that conviction. I mean, there's nothing Western about democracy. There's nothing American about democracy. Democracy is something that you either want or you don't want, you fight for, you don't fight for. And you don't, you don't need, you know, I think we should be on the right side, but fundamentally you don't need us for it. What I think the Americans should be doing is helping Belarusians tell their tell the story. Mm-hmm. So going back to a point that you've made a couple of times already in your questions, Russian Russia has a, has a good storytelling apparatus, you know, and mainly what they do with their storytelling is that they monopolize the victimhood and they they marginalize the aggression and they crowd everybody else's story out. And I think that has to end. I mean, I think Ukrainians and Belarusians um, have to be helped in the sense of like positions and money, not, not telling you what your story is, right? I don't want to tell you what your story is, but I think what one thing the Americans and the Europeans should be doing is setting up university positions, um, subsidizing journals, you know, um, subsidizing Belarusian reporters, even ones who are working outside of Belarus, but basically anyone who's working on investigation, these people should all be, should, could be helped by us. I mean, because that's like, it's very hard for us to affect directly what happens in Belarus in the short term. But what we can do is we can help a story to be told and a story to be spread so that the next time something crucial happens, we'll have, we'll do a better job at apprehending what's happening. Professor Snyder, thank you so much for your time. Um, I have but one last question for you. On a more general and perhaps even philosophical note, um, I, if I remember correctly, Oscar Wilde, in one of his novels, noticed that, and I quote, uh, nothing is impossible in Russia but reform. And I find this quote to be a beautiful reflection of Russia's proclivity for political imagination, for transition to the so-called medium lies we saw in the 90s, um, but also of the absence of unpredictable in Russia's worldview, the absence of change and of history itself in a way. So can we say that perhaps Russia discovered the politics of eternity way before the 20th century? And maybe that Russia is culturally predisposed towards the politics of eternity? I mean, I think Russia has a cultural proclivity to find tendencies in the West and either embody them in an extreme form or reject them in extreme form. So even the the politics of eternity for me is a way, I mean, for me, when I look at Russia and the politics of eternity, I think this is a warning, right? It's a warning about the way other countries can be. It shows the logical endpoint of of actually developments, for example, in the United States. If we move towards more media centralization, more oligarchy, more wealth inequality, this is what it looks like at at the end. And the, the the same goes for the Bolshevik revolution, right? I mean, Marxism is not a Russian idea, you know, Lenin was an emigre politician. Um, he just t- he took something to a logical extreme, which was consistent with Marxism. It was by no means a f- contradiction of Marxism, but he took something to 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 an extreme. So, I mean, I see Russia more as a as a mirror of than 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 as an exception. And the politics of eternity would be just one more example. Um, I mean, again, like 
Russian conservatism, like the Slovana, the um, the Slavophile movement, mm -hmm. is you know that's romanticism just taken to an extreme, right? So I I, I see Russia more as, as as being part of the West and is taking Western ideas and Western tendencies and showing where they can go, if you know if you take them a little bit too seriously, or if you don't allow a pluralism which allows them to be complemented with 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 other things. But what I want to close here by saying is that. I don't think Russia is predictable. You know, I, I, I think, I mean, I'm not saying that things in Russia are going to get better anytime soon, but I, I would say that um, there are an awful lot of Russians who are just as thoughtful about all of this as, you know, as any of the rest of us are. And um, we, we don't want to be telling a story which says that Russia is predictable and we know that way the Russia is going to be because when we do that, we close off possibilities, you know, and, and we should be trying to keep possibilities open, not just for Ukraine and Belarus, but also for Russia. And that's it for today's episode. Thank you for listening. Please rate us, subscribe to our channel, and share this episode if you like these kind of topics. Or if you merely liked our pun in the podcast title. You know, the BFF talks. <laughs> in case you have enjoyed Professor Snyder's exhaustive discussion of contemporary authoritarianism and democracy in Eastern Europe, I highly recommend getting his books on tyranny and on the road to unfreedom, as well as listening to his many public lectures available on YouTube. My favorite one is the one about fascism versus not even fascism in modern societies. Great listen, highly recommend it. As for us, you can find new episodes of BFF Talks wherever you get your podcast, as well as on our website, belarusff.org. You can also subscribe to our newsletter, where we give you a highly condensed rundown of the foreign news involving Belarus and its neighboring countries, and whenever a new episode comes out, it will have a handy link to it. But for now, thank you again for listening. I'm Dr. Mark Ashworth, and I will see you in the next one.